0: live interactive and here to assist you if you need help dealing with addiction mental health challenges and more this is road to recovery with your host yona budd only on 640
1: toronto good evening welcome to the show you're on the road to recovery my name is yona budd i'll be your host this evening along with heather and sophia or natasha whoever's in the studio right now i think both of them might be who knows But we're there standing by to help you out. And if uh, you want to get a hold of us, Road to Recovery at 640toronto.com is the best way to send us a message. And uh, we'll take your information, share it if we can, uh, use it in some way. So we do pay attention and we appreciate uh, you sending the information along to us and paying attention to what we're saying when we're talking about it. So Uh, we'll listen to you you listen to us and it makes for a great relationship you know the the first subject here that i want to talk about is this there's a study um in the uk uh that talks about young people's mental health uh and it's getting worse uh and mindfulness training uh, everyone thought was going to be the answer Uh, i don't know if you remember about a year or so ago i did a show about a UK based uh, kindergarten class that was teaching mindfulness in the morning um, and uh, kids were doing really well. Uh, But in the area of teens in particular, so here's the deal. According to CNN's, um, according to the CNN report, there's a crisis in teen mental health. Okay. So schools in many countries are exploring different ways to deal with it, to help people become more, more, the young people become more resilient, right? That's their job. So, however, UK based research project, the largest kind of, of, of on that subject, has suggested that mindfulness training in schools might be a dead end, right? It's just not working, at least universally, one size fits all approach. It's not the answer. The study, which involved 28,000 children, 650 teachers in 100 schools, looked at the impact of mindfulness training over an eight year period and found that the technique really didn't help the mental health and well being of adolescents 11 to 14. The author suggested investigating other options to improve adolescent mental health. Adolescence is absolutely crucial time of development. They go on to say uh, the brain goes through important and fundamental changes in, in adolescence that set the trajectory for people's lives. Mindfulness training involves learning how to pay attention, be in the moment, understand and manage feelings and behaviors to be able to cope better with stress and promote good mental health. So I can tell you after four decades of teaching things related to mental, to mindfulness, even before it was called mindfulness, you know, living in the moment, so to speak, I've been teaching that, sharing that, using that in therapy for over four decades. And it works really well for the most part for people that have anxiety or depression, teaching them to find their focus on the day versus, you know, what's behind them, what's in front of them. Right. But with young children, like 11 to 14, 11 to 17, even 11 to 18, 19, in that age range, man, they can't stay focused unless it's a video game or something cool to eat. They can't stay focused for 15 minutes. It's just in their genes, so to speak. It's very difficult for young people to get their heads around the concept of focusing on the moment, which usually requires some level of meditation, some level of recognition of where you are in the moment, So, paying attention to where you are in the moment. And I don't think necessarily that these are um, the kinds of skills that I believe young, from this is just my personal opinion for what it's worth. It's my show I get to share, right? Um, I I just don't think kids have the necessary tools to absorb that kind of, of, of therapy. And their lives are changing so fast. I mean, in the morning, they're you know, uh, you know, the little boy at school is in love with you know the girl in his class, and by by five o'clock, he's in love with another kid because you know they had a falling out, and the one day that they've been boyfriend girlfriend, like their lives change by the minute. So mindfulness for a fourteen year old or twelve year old is very difficult for them to get their heads around because their focus is on you know, like where they're going to have dinner and where they're going to eat. And, you know, if they're old enough, you know, what they might do when they get out of school, if they're, if they're enlightened like that. They're just not in a place where they can focus on the types of things they need to focus on for mindfulness to be effective. So it's not that mindfulness doesn't work, because I think it's a great tool, a remarkable strategy, and life-changing for me, for sure, and any of the people that I know that use it. But it's not for everyone, and certainly not, taught by taught by adult teachers or trainers if you will to children it's highly ineffective would have been i would have could have told them out of the gate waste of time and money now there's evidence around the fact of using mindfulness being shared and taught in a peer support environment right most students didn't engage with the program they only practiced it over 10 weeks of the course and then when the course was over they moved on and they felt it boring and so on. But researchers who looked at this thing suggested that peer-based approaches to teaching mindfulness would be a better alternative. So for ha- perhaps a, a kid in a higher grade, right, could teach a kid in a lower grade mindfulness and how they use it, how it impacted their life. Because you got to remember, a grade five student looking at a grade nine student, they're automatically at that place where they're in awe anyway, right? So don't, you know, as my mother would say, don't poo-poo mindfulness. It's just not being applied in the right environment to the right people the right way. So it's, I don't think it's a question of the tool not being effective. I think it's a question of who's using the tool, not necessarily being effective. So the, the thought of teaching kids how to live for the moment, and don't be so worried about tomorrow and don't focus on the bad things in the past, it can be done. I do it all the time. I teach it to my, my patients in that age range all the time but it's a slow process. They have to take it on slowly. It's one little step at a time. You know, you need more than 10 weeks to actually get it entrenched and and kind of, you know, emblazoned in their lifestyle. But the article to say that it's just not the panacea, of course not. But maybe the way they're delivering it is the problem, not the material itself. So that's what I have to say about that. According to the study, I kind of thumbs down on the study in terms of, of saying it doesn't work. It just doesn't work the way it's being delivered. I think we need to to stay at it and come at it a different way, perhaps with different uh, different representation, different presentation. Uh, when we come back, we have so many things to do tonight. This is what we're doing. We're going to talk about drinking alone as a kid, how that can pre- can, that'll predict likely that you have alcoholism. Yeah, it's an incredible study. Uh, we're also talking about uh, the, that there was no evidence for people that uh, they ended up having their licenses taken away, but they weren't impaired, but their doctor thought they had a drinking problem. So they called, they sent a letter to a note to MTO, a report, a special thing that they do. And anyway, we'll talk about that. And coming up, we're going to talk about youth drinking alone and how that's tied to alcoholism and all kinds of stuff to pay attention to. So do what you got to do. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. And you're joining me here on the Road to Recovery, Yonabud, 640 Toronto.
0: Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on six forty Toronto.
1: Okay, welcome back. You're on the Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud, here at six forty Toronto. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're talking about a lot of interesting things tonight, so stick around. It's a long show, but it's going to be fun to fly by because we uh, have a lot to do, and uh, we'd like to share with you. So. It's a good experience for everybody. Just tune in and uh, stick with us. So, uh, been doing a lot of thinking um, around young people lately. I, I Part of my private practice includes teenagers from 13 to 25, and um, you know they're having some real, real struggles, like real struggles. Uh, some of the struggles that we see uh, are in you know around the area of substance abuse, right? Uh, drinking too much, smoking a little too much weed. Maybe taking other things. Party drugs are big these days, right? Uh, Ecstasy and such. Uh, Just, you know, and with someone who is not so social and perhaps locked down in their own life, you know, not getting out of the basement, so to speak, um, and continues to drink alone, party alone, if it's not really partying, uh, using substances alone. um, There are now studies that show that drinking alone, actually, when younger, links to alcoholism uh, in, the, in the mid-30s from, from teenage years. So the study, it's a CNN report here. Uh, the study says uh, drinking alone during adolescent uh, adolescence excuse me, and young adulthood can strongly increase the risk of alcohol abuse later in life, especially if you're a woman, a new, a new study finds in the finding of, to uh, add to the finding, the documented increase in drinking among Americans, I would say Canadians as well, North Americans during the pandemic, and you have a worrisome situation, like no kidding. Said lead study author Casey Cresswell, she's actually Dr. Casey Cresswell, an associate professor of psychology at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, several studies have now shown that solitary drinking increased as a result of the pandemic, likely due to the closure of bars, social venues, etc. staying at home. Studies have, according to Dr. Cresswell, studies have also shown that the associations between solidarity drinking and alcohol problems are stronger for young women compared to young men, she said. This is especially concerning given that there have been recent increases in solidarity drinking among U.S. female adolescents. And we're fortunate tonight to have Dr. Casey Cresswell with us. Good evening, Dr. Cresswell. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's a pleasure. It's okay if I call you Casey?
2: Oh, yes, please.
1: (laughs) It's it's such a cool name, Casey Cresswell. Like you should have been like, I don't know, some kind of rock star maybe, Uh, but (laughs) you you probably are in the world that you live in. So first question I have, Why worse for women than for men?
2: Well, that's a great question. So we do think, as you mentioned, that these young people who are drinking alone are doing it to cope with negative emotions. These are teenagers and young adults that are turning to alcohol as a way to feel better when they're feeling depressed or anxious or stressed out or lonely. Now, studies haven't looked at the reason why young women might be at increased risk. Although several studies have documented that, we think maybe these young women might be more likely to turn to alcohol as a way to cope with negative emotions.
1: Okay, so um, now let's let's talk about the the this whole concept of of making the pain go away using substances. Um, so you're finding, and I, and I would concur by the way, the findings that. Uh, Young people that are in in a struggling situation where they're struggling, um, like you say, are tend to drink, you know, at home and alone, Um, and it's a different pattern, isn't it? It's a different drinking pattern. Maybe you can address that a little bit.
2: Oh, it absolutely is. So most young people, most teenagers and young adults who are drinking alcohol are only doing that with other people. They drink with their friends. They drink at parties. Some researchers have even talked about that social type of drinking among young people as being a marker for popularity or social well-being. Yep. So in, with that background, consider then a, a, a subset of young people that drink alone, it is it is highly un, uh, it, it is highly non normative, and we think it could place these young adults and these teenagers on a path of increasing their drinking and developing problems later because they're using alcohol as a way to deal with negative emotions rather than using healthier or more adaptive ways to deal with negative emotions.
1: So we're talking about teenagers. Now, assuming that now, does your study uh, differ uh, in terms of whether students or whether these young people are students at home or perhaps students away at college, university, a campus like that? Um, Any correlation there?
2: So what we did was we used national samples of U.S high school students all across the United States, 4,500 of them. And we followed those individuals until they were 35 years old. We did follow up with them when they were 23 or 24 years old. So we could ask them at that assessment time point, whether they were in school or university or not. The remarkable thing about our findings, though, is that we control for a host of different risk factors that we know increase risk for alcohol problems later, including whether or not they were going to college or not, um, whether they were binge drinking, how often they were drinking. We controlled for male sex and lower socioeconomic status. Even after we controlled for all of those things, drinking alone sharply increased risk to develop problems at age 35.
1: Would you say, just uh, as an aside from the study itself, um, would you not say that a lo- you know, a solidarity in itself becomes an issue whether there's a substance mixed in there or not?
2: Yes, loneliness. There's a lot of interest yeah, right now. Know,
1: better word, better word.
2: Yes, loneliness and feeling yeah. um, is- socially isolated absolutely increases risk for a host of different problems, including substance use.
1: So we're according to the study, the, it's a 17-year study. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Dr. Casey Cresswell. She's a, an associate professor at, uh, of psychology at Carnegie Mellon a University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we're talking about uh, young people who drink alone as a as a as a marker for uh, longer-term studies that show that that becomes alcohol becomes an issue in terms of becoming alcoholic, I suppose, or um, dealing with alcoholism uh, as an illness. Um, 25% of teenagers, 40% of young adults who drink, according to the study report, reported drinking alone. That's a gigantic number, doctor.
2: It's quite alarming. Yes, we were surprised by that number. Um, several smaller studies found um, percentages that were uh, lower than that. So we are quite confident uh, or at least more confident in these findings because it's such a large national sample But yes, it is quite striking how many young people are drinking alone. And also recent studies have shown that among adolescent females drinking alone is increasing, which again is particularly worrisome because we saw a much stronger link between drinking alone and future alcohol problems in 18 year old females compared to males.
1: Yeah, so we're, we're talking about here, uh, the study that I'm looking at, I'm, I'm reading some of the information, uh, that the odds of alcohol use disorder symptoms at age 35 was 86% higher for adolescent females, high school seniors, who drank alone. So um, it's a, I'll tell you why it's such a big number for me, because it's my experience in working with teens that uh, females, for the most part, have a bigger friend circle usually than boys, uh, typically then for girls to kind of be alone where one of their friends doesn't reach out and say, you know, hey, Katie, you know, where were you? Haven't been at school in a couple of days. So the seclusion alone or the ability to drink alone uh, in such a high percentage of, of young people that age um, would seem like it doesn't mesh properly with the combination of social of the sociology, excuse me, the sociology around, you know, girls and friends and friend circles versus boys and friends and friend circles. It doesn't seem to match. What's your take on that?
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I've been getting a lot of questions about why females are at increased risk, but I think you're exactly right here. So we do know that women in general, um, not every woman, but in general, women do have stronger social supports um, than men. And we also know, previous studies have shown that drinking alone among young men is more normative, meaning that it's it's more likely endorsed by young men than young women to drink alone. So what I think we might be seeing here is that these are young women that do not have good social connections, that might not have the necessary social support to adaptively cope with negative emotions. And that's why they might be turning to alcohol as a way to cope with those.
1: So uh, we only got a couple of minutes left. The the, the thinking around pandemic drinking, um, I think you and I are exactly on the same page, but the study prior to the research showed, uh, prior research showed 41% increase in heavy drinking days, heavy drinking days among women since the onset of the pandemic. Part of the reason may be the blurring of boundaries between home and work. Uh, do you want to opine on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The findings that have come out about drinking during the pandemic are, you um, they're conflicting. So some studies do find an increase, um, a recent meta analysis. That's a study that would look and combine the results of many, many different studies yeah. did find that there was a, uh, there was increased drinking aw- among women. So I think we can be pretty confident in that finding, you know, the pandemic, um, we were at home, right? We were at home for yeah. at least 12 months. Yeah. Um, people, uh, were not able to connect with others in a meaningful way. Um, and, Coupled with that, we saw drastic increases in depression and anxiety, particularly Absolutely. among young people. So we might have this perfect storm situation where young people then are developing a different kind of relationship with alcohol, not you know drinking with friends out at parties or bars, but rather drinking at home when they're feeling upset or stressed out, maybe due to the pandemic. So yeah, this could create a situation where we might see increases in problematic drinking patterns particularly among young people.
1: Well, I appreciate the, the input. I mean, uh, so we're just touching the iceberg here, but parents clearly have to start paying more attention to what their kids are doing, doing how often they're doing the things they're doing. They're not coming out of the basement. Obviously, they want to look at that stuff anyway. I'm talking to Dr. Casey Cresswell. She's an associate professor of psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're talking about the evidence of kids that drink alone, teens that drink alone, more so women, boys than girls, more so girls than boys, leads to alcoholism uh, clearly down the road. Appreciate your time, Doctor. Have a great evening and uh, hope to have you back again sometime soon. Thank you.
2: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, indeed. When we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, we're staying on this drinking pattern a little bit. There's, if, if, there was no evidence that these people were drinking after uh, or drove after they were drinking, yet they lost their licenses anyway. When we come back from break, we're going to talk to an expert and deal with that just a little bit. You're on the road to recovery. Yonabud, 640 Toronto.
0: Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640, Toronto.
1: Okay, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. We're staying on the track here of talking about alcohol and how it impacts us. Um, there was The article starts off by saying no evidence that they drove after drinking. so why did they lose their licenses for longer than Ontarians? Uh, convicted of impaired driving. So here's the deal. The deal is, and I've got a patient uh, who had exactly the same situation. She um, was having issues with her drinking, not not all the time, but some issues with drinking. Certainly would never drive impaired. Uh, mother of three children, busy, you know, busy life. Uh, but definitely had some problems. And she, you know, her and I decided that for some withdrawal management care, she needed to go out to seek. You know, the help of her doctor. Uh, she made an appointment to talk to her doctor. She went to her family doctor, GP. Uh, she went and had the conversation with her family doctor. And um, next thing you know, her family doctor uh, puts her on a list with MTO and her driver's license was, uh, was taken uh, in this case, six months. But the article says here, after a stressful day, the woman had a drink before going to her doctor for swelling in her legs. There was no suggestion at the appointment about her having a drinking problem. Really, no discussion about alcohol at all. The next day, the doctor reported her to the Ministry of Transportation, alleging she was dependent on alcohol and composed a risk to road safety. Despite a spotless 25-year record, she lost her license for nearly two years. That's longer than if she was charged with impaired driving in some cases. Even though a tribunal later found she did not have a drinking problem, and accepted that she had never, ever been impaired behind the wheel. The woman, who's unnamed in the tribunal's decision, is one of the Ontarians, one of many, many Ontarians, probably thousands, I'm guessing, I don't know the real number, whose license suspension for alleged alcohol abuse lasted longer than suspensions for people who were actually drinking drunk. These types of drivers are amongst dozens of Ontarians Whose licenses were suspended by the province for alcohol-related medical conditions, that a provincial appeal body later found did not threaten road safety, according to a Star investigation report. Drunk driving is a scourge to the public, and the suspension suspension of licenses for drivers who drink is likely to impair their driving, can save lives, and so on. That all makes sense, but the unfounded suspensions can upset a person's life. Imagine not being able to go to work just because you went and talked to your doctor about potentially having a drinking problem, but then you lose your license, which means you can't go to work. You can't make a living. You've never driven drunk and your drinking problem is something that, you know, you've got to get a handle on, but it hasn't impacted your ability to to drive because you don't do it drunk, nor the safety of those on the street because you don't drive drunk. We don't want to punish people who, are trying to get care, according to Dr. David Gradzner. He's the co chief of general adult psychiatry at the Center of Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. You've heard of them before. When asked, the, when MTO was asked to respond to requests for comments about this particular story, um, they uh, the ministry had previously stated it applies consistent medical standards that are designed to balance road safety and mobility for Ontarians. Except you and I both know, right? We're paying attention. You're, if you're not sure who you're listening to, this is Yona Budd here on the road to recovery at 640 Toronto. We're talking about alcohol and how that impacts you if your doctor thinks you have a problem and takes away your license. It's not a whole lot different than when you show up to the emergency ward having some suicidal thoughts, looking for help. And the next thing you know, the emergency room doctor lets MTO know that you're not safe to drive, unbeknownst to you until... You try to drive the next time and get pulled over, you've had your license taken away. So physicians reported more than 9,000 Ontario drivers to the MTO from April 2011 to to December uh, 2020, excuse me, to December 2020, citing alcoholism, alcohol withdrawal, alcohol-related psychoses, according to the Ontario Insurance Plan, OHIP. The data was obtained by the STAR uh, based on the University of Toronto's Dalai Lama School of Public Health uh, on an ongoing investigation into the medical condition, these medical condition reports called MCRs. We talked about it a few weeks ago as it related to mental health. It took the woman, so the woman whose license was suspended for almost two years after she saw her doctor, right? That's woolen legs. It took the woman three months and a formal freedom of information request to learn why she has been suspended to begin with. So before she could even respond to alleged issues, right? It took her three months to access that information. Where, like, where's the transparency here, right? She eventually went to a psychiatrist who wrote a six-page report finding that she didn't have a drinking problem. It took her going to a psychiatrist to, find a, to file a report that suggests she didn't have a drinking problem. I'm not sure how the psychiatrist comes to that conclusion, but okay. Then the ministry's only evidence was a check mark in the original report from her family doctor indicating she suffered from alcohol dependency. The length of time she was without a license substantially longer than those with drunken driving suspensions. So drivers that get suspended, right, they can reduce their suspension on, on a drunk driving thing that they can reduce to three months, six months. Enrolling in programs, installing a, an ignition interlock device, a, you know, which is a, a device that you breathe into. If you're not drinking, the car starts. If you're drinking, the car won't. But these MCRs put people in positions where their licenses are suspend, suspended after seeking help. It what the what the problem is here is you no longer want to seek help if your concern is that unbeknownst to you, not in a transparent way, but in a very backhanded kind of way. Your license is going to be taken away from you without your knowledge, based on information you've shared in confidence with a doctor, a physician, somebody who is there to provide the support, right? And then from that information, that person then carries on with that confidential information. And the next thing you know, you're not driving. Very difficult to get your head around, very difficult to to, to deal with, right? Right. And according to the addiction specialist, they raise concerns about the province's approach to suspending licenses. The length of time the ministry requires drivers to be abstinent, to be abstinent is out of step with the medical community's approach. Um, According to Dr. Hajalua, who is an Alberta-based addiction specialist. So a person can be considered fit to drive, but uh, under the proper care. And anyway, it's a big problem. We need to pay attention to this thing. Uh, People are losing their licenses unfairly. Uh, if you think you've been uh, unfairly written up, uh, you got to seek some uh, help. Get talk to a lawyer, perhaps. See if you can appeal it uh, as soon as possible. But uh, yeah, man, there's a big hole in this, and we got to figure this out. When we come back, we got more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud. 640 Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto.
1: Okay, welcome back. Thank you for continuing to stay with us this evening. We're uh, about halfway through the show and um, doing a bunch of stuff here that I hope resonates with you in some way. And if you're not sure where you are, who you dialed into, you're on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud, I'm your host, and you're listening to 640 Toronto. Um, the discussion I want to have now could be very uncomfortable for people. So I want to let you know that ahead of time, uh, but it's not a discussion we need to have because the world is changing and the way we handle certain situations are changing. Um, and as a result, there's things that come up that we definitely need to talk about. So uh, the article that I'm referring to in particular, the thing that kind of got my attention, there's an Ontario woman enduring, uh, effects of long-term COVID, uh, begins the process for medical assisted Death And the story goes like this. Contracting COVID-19 radically changed Tracy Thompson's life. It's been more than two years since the initial infection, but her symptoms still dictate her days, leaving her with heavy-weighted fatigue, robbing her of energy and so on, just not ability your ability to go to work. Um, Thompson, she's a Toronto resident in her 50s, says the enduring illness and lack of substantive Financial support, which is what got my attention, has led her to begin the process of applying for medical assisted dying, a procedure that first became legal in Canada. Um, it's exclusive, she said, uh, is exclusively a financial consideration. After 26 months of lost income since the onset of symptoms, no foreseeable ability, no foreseeable, excuse me, ability to work, and absence of support, Thompson said she expects to run out of money in about five months. My choices are to basically die slowly and painfully, or to, to die either slowly and painfully or quickly. Those are the options I have left. In addition to fatigue, loss of number other symptoms, she can no longer read books and so on. Some days oxygen exchange is difficult for her. After a year, she became ill. She uh, the, then the legislation for medical assisted dying was revised, and um, only those before with natural death was reasonably foreseeable, otherwise known as track one. Now there's a track two for Canadians enduring intolerable and irreversible illnesses, disease or disability with whom may not be near the natural or end of their lives can qualify for assisted death. My guest this evening is Dr. Kerry Bowman. He's a bioethicist with the University of Toronto. Uh, Dr. Bowman, thank you for joining us this evening.
3: Yes, happy to do so.
1: Cool to call you, Carrie, or you want to be? Yeah, no, call me Carrie, please. Okay, perfect. One of my best friends in school when I was a kid whose name was, his name is and was Carrie. Um, First question I have for you, doctor, uh, for Carrie, is slippery slope. Like, I'm running out of money. I have all these ailments. I don't see any care for me in the foreseeable future. So I want to apply to end my life. Um, You want to share, first of all, you want to share with us what a bioethicist does and then your opinion on this position
3: yeah so yeah let's start with what a bioethicist does i'll tell you what we don't do is we do not have all the answers uh, the task of a bioethicist is really to try and delineate you know the ethical tensions why this is an ethical issue and i think anyone can see that it is but but really what are the factors that play in a complex ethical issue so You know, I'm horrified. And I think a lot of people listening probably are too. And um, long COVID is, I've seen it a few times now. I think more and more of us have seen it. I've seen it in people I know. I've seen it in people I don't know. It's a horrendous thing. Uh, We know very, very little about it. but here's the thing finances, like, so since when does end of life decisions be, since when are they linked to finances? Well, it seems like now that they are. So, you know, as we moved into medical assistance and dying, and look, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I have been directly involved in medical assistance and dying um, in, in hospitals. Um, I have been supportive of it, but I must say with a lot more ambivalence than most of my colleagues um, uh, from the outset. And and part of the ambivalence has been we live in a very, very unequal society. And as medical assistance in dying has expanded, and I'm not surprised it has, by the way, and I I don't think most people listening are surprised that it has, that um, as as the eligibility criteria has expanded, so has the ethical questions. They've gotten much, much more complicated because when we review the case, and look, I don't know this case. I'm always hesitant to discuss cases I don't know, but I want to speak in some fairly general terms. What we're hearing about this case is finances is is certainly one of the most significant drivers. Um, This is very, very worrisome because the financial strife which Really, it does affect our health and safety and well-being and all those things. It's still not a medical condition. No, and this is what if, makes if, it if, so yeah, complicated.
1: If I can jump in in the middle here, uh, you're 100 percent right. Um, here's the issue. You know, how many people would say if you were to talk to some homeless folks under the bridge or, you know, people who are you know living in, in uh, day-to-day housing where they can find it based on government assistance? I mean, there are thousands of people who would say that getting through life every day is miserable. And if they could end it, you know, in some way that, you know, wasn't ugly, they would, uh, cause they can't afford to live mm-hmm. that, that for me as a crisis worker, as a therapist for over 40 years, like you said, very troubling.
3: It is, it is truly, truly troubling. And I myself, am a former social worker. So we, we might be on a somewhat similar page on this in which we've, we've seen a lot of vulnerability firsthand. And, um, you know, as things expanded, this is what has occurred. And a lot of people in the early days, when we were reviewing made, and in the early days of made, and before it became legal said, well, we can control for vulnerability. Well, you know what, we can't. Um, maybe we can in a lot of cases, not in all cases. And what complicates it further is, you know, I, I, I work with physicians. I've worked with physicians most of my life. They are wonderful people. They have many insights. But look, you are now putting physicians into the position where their assessment of eligibility for medical assistance in dying is now driven by poverty, uh, race, uh, vulnerability, finances, uh, discrimination. These are profoundly complex, cultural, social, political elements that are not necessarily medical. So we're asking a lot of healthcare workers or physicians particularly uh, to be assessing these types of things. And, you know, what we could say is, well, look, if people are vulnerable, then we'll say they're vulnerable and they're not eligible. But you know what? That's not fair either. If we say, you know, your income's really low and (coughs) you have all these vulnerabilities, you're not allowed to apply, (coughs) that that creates another (coughs) injustice as well. So, you know, it's very, very tricky stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I um, the whole moral and ethical question, which is like you say, it's not a medical issue, um, and I guess the bioethicist in you is really about that. It's about the ethics around the the activity, correct? I mean, I, you're, you're looking you're looking at things and trying to figure out kind of where that matches from an ethical perspective, correct? Yeah.
3: No, that's quite right. And you know, there's the ethics of what should be done in this particular situation with this woman that is really, really struggling. But we need to go a little further upstream. There's the ethics of all of us as Canadians. Is this really what we signed on for when when many but not all of us supported medical assistance in dying? And is this the kind of society we choose to live in? you know, where this level of vulnerability because someone can't keep up with their rent through no fault of their own is, is absolutely hobbled by illness, um, is now requesting medical assistance and dying. Um, you know, these are very tough issues. And I, I would argue these issues got really swept under the carpet uh, yeah, when we time. were reviewing these things in advance yeah. of medical assistance and dying. I don't think we really had an honest exploration of these issues.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, it caught me off guard, uh, Carrie. It really caught me off guard um, when they talked about this level two. Uh, you know, I, I, I listen. I, I've lived with uh, relatives and uh, folk folks that have had issues, um, but you know, the the big question should be that we don't have the autonomy to choose when it's our time to go. Um, right? Like, how do we? You know, you decide that life is difficult, and now I I just want to check out. Um, Just this next level, this this tier two. Tell tell me why they gave up on tier one to to look at tier two from from your perspective.
3: Well, I mean, the arguments were fundamentally ethical in nature, and you know, if if you were, and look, the legislation never ever said terminal illness. So I want to be clear, you know, it, it, you know, grievous and irremediable, and a lot of words that actually don't work well for medical people because they're not medical terms. Right. But you know, the argument would be so someone has a, a you know, a, a a diagnosis that I'm going to use the word terminal. Please remember, the legislation never did uh, that has a terminal diagnosis, <clears throat> as a to someone living with a painful, you know, condition that can't ever be resolved, Um, you know, so the argument would be, is that ethically fair? And remember, within less than a year now, you know, mental health considerations will now be up front as well. But, you know, the the growing of the tent of inclusion I I saw coming, and I think it's it's not my insight, a lot of people saw coming, you know, because cases tend to be challenged and challenged and pushed. And it is definitely getting larger and larger and larger. But, you know, what, and, and, you know, just getting to to your point, what if a person says, you know, my life is just dreadful, irrespective of medical conditions. I'm not suggesting that's ever going to be a criteria, but, you know, what kind of a society are we turning into? I also worry terribly that, you know, it's changing the way we look at illness and vulnerability and human yes. frailty in a lot of ways in which you know i fear the day could come when we look at a person that is really really struggling with with physical or perhaps psychological challenges and we and <clears throat> we start to think why would they do that to themselves why would they do that to other people and that would be very very wrong, I think, and very tragic if in fact we've reached that point. I think it's really shifting the way we see a lot of things in ways that we're not fully conscious of. Look, so, having said that, Yona, I, I want to say, you know, for the majority of cases I've been involved with, me- with medical assistance in dying, there has been a catastrophic illness that is never going to be rectified yeah. and it's going to lead to death. And it has been, I'm using the words of other people, a godsend as defined by patients and their families. So we need to keep that in mind as well.
1: Yeah, I hear you. We got about a little less than a minute. I got a question one question here is, you know, what about the possibilities in today's day and age, you're around doctors. I'm around doctors. Uh, we're reading about research, I'm sure you do as well. You know, we're coming up with things to make people's lives easier, better, smoother, certainly in the area of mental health, obviously in the areas of, of physical health. you know, packing it in too early, what if there's a what if there's a cure around the corner? You got less than forty-five seconds.
3: <laughs> well, that's the problem with all of this. There could be a cure around the corner for lots of things, and there may not be. And let me just say this in conclusion: if there's one thing we do not know much about, it's long COVID. We don't even yet have a clear diagnostic criteria. Right. I'm not suggesting for a moment it's not real, but boy, we don't understand it either.
1: Oh well, I, it's just uh I can't believe we're having this discussion, but it's important to have. I'm talking. Uh, I'm talking with an expert here on medical-assisted dying. Well, not an expert. He's a bioethicist with the University of Toronto whose, whose expertise is around some of these questions for sure. Uh, Dr. Kerry Bowman. Kerry, um, we're going to clearly have to have you back on again because I don't think this, this discussion is going anywhere, going away anytime soon. And um, certainly I think we need to bring it to the attention of Canadians and uh, let people make their own decisions. So when we come back, we got a whole bunch more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yonabud 640 Toronto.
0: You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto.
1: says welcome back we wanted to bring you back for the second hour with something a little special so natasha threw it together and uh, we have an incredible team here uh thank you for joining us you are listening to the road to recovery if you're just tuning in for the first time and if you're coming back hope you had a little snack stretch your leg use the bathroom because we got a whole bunch more stuff to do here for the next hour i want you to jump in on this with me though 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255 if you're a healthcare provider or if you do anything kind of on the front lines related to healthcare, and you're feeling a little burnt out or maybe not feeling burnt out and this is how you're getting around it, I want to hear from you. 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. I'll even take a call from someone who had an interaction with a doctor or a nurse or somebody and could tell that they were burnt out having a real hard time i gotta tell you man straight up if you're all paying attention i love you guys you're the best audience ever um i really appreciate the fact that you let me into your lives here for a couple hours on a saturday night but listen you know like everyone else out there i've been doing this stuff uh mental health work and crisis work and working with kids in crisis families in crisis addiction issues legal issues all kinds of stuff related to mental health and addiction and all that you know kids and gangs i do it all right i'm involved in all of that kind of stuff and Last couple of years, man, last two and a half years, uh, been pretty tough. And then, you know, losing my mom three, four months or four months ago in March, um, you know, just kind of threw me over the edge a little bit. Needed to get away, did so. Had a bit of a vacation and holiday with my kids and my wife, and it was really, really wonderful. But you know, uh, it's it's um, I'm one guy with a whole. You know, I got a whole bunch of other people that work with me on my team, but um, I, I'm one guy, and I see. You know, I'm 10 hours a day doing virtual care, you know, on on video, um, in the comforts of my own studio and, and home office, so to speak. And you know, I'm still having a hard time. I got to be honest with everybody that's listened to me out there. Listen, my my I do my best for my patients. I clearly I'm able to separate my life from theirs. Uh, but I got to tell you, I, I'm not the only one that's you know having difficult time. You know. Making sure my empathy is in check and making sure I have the energy to listen properly and that I'm I'm really, you know, hearing what my patients have to say and involved in the things that they're telling me, not so not drifting off into my own kind of space so that I can keep my own life in check. And that's kind of the that's kind of the challenge, right? As as mental health providers and as caregivers, you know, our, our, it's keeping our own stuff in check. And according to an expert here, um, our nation's mental health depends on the mental health care of our providers, is how the article goes here. Uh, it's in Psychology Today. Um, and, you know, it talks about health care providers that have to combat the same stresses over the last years of everyone else, right? Isolation, financial stress, um, although, you know, anyone that I know that's working in mental health and addiction is so busy um, you know there's tons of jobs out there or t- or tons of people out there that, tons of jobs out there not so many people to fill them so you know from a from a I guess employment perspective it's a a hot place to get a job right now if that's what you're looking for but you know if you've been at it for a while and you've been through the quote unquote the pandemic, um and we come out the other side. We're, go, we're looking at decades going forward here of unsettled mental health, certainly um, in adults and definitely um, in children. We don't know how many years that's going that's going to roll itself. It could be, you know, the next 20, 30, 40 years of our kids getting their mental health in check, right? But burnout is the biggest threat to health care, according to the experts in the US on mental health and, and, uh, and health care workforce. Um, According to the study of 2,084 North American psychiatrists in 2020, 78% self-reported high levels of burnout. Okay? So 2,000 psychiatrists across the country, across the U.S., 78% presented burnout. So given the events and continued stress over the last couple of years, the numbers likely increased since 2020. But how can providers be expected to treat patients, according to this article, with mental challenges of their own? Well, I'll tell you how we do it. Do it the same way we teach our patients how to manage their stuff, right? I practice manful, mindfulness, I practice cognitive behavioral therapy, I try to be somewhat physical, I'm careful with what I eat, I make sure I eat often enough that I don't have any hungry moments. I s- try to sleep as well as possible, sleep in when I can. Get extra naps in if I'm able to. Um, get out, you know, do something with fresh air as often as I can. Um, Family, friends, parent, you know, my deal with my dad and looking after my dad, and he's looking after me. So, you know, we are we got lots to do. That's how I keep myself going forward. Plus, I have people to talk to I have professionals that I can go to. So the demand continues. There's no end in sight for the need for mental health and health care providers and care workers in the area of crisis and substance abuse disorder and all that stuff. It's only going to it's only going to increase. It's going to increase significantly in the next number of years, as I've said. So there's this other thing. The problem is then that that healthcare workers need to have something in place to provide them with care, and we're going to get to that here in a second because there's some suggestions in the U.S. of how they plan to do that. And then you know, and then it's just not just a the burnout. It's there's something here called compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue overload, frankly. Mental health providers are facing what's called pandemic-induced compassion fatigue, also known as vicarious trauma, which occurs when psychologists or others take on the suffering of patients who have experienced extreme stress or trauma. And the regular sounding board for patients' struggles, compassion fatigue is essentially an occupational hazard for mental health providers, but one that's only exasperated by the difficulties with supply and demand. So when you can manage... Um, when you can manage your patient flow, um, you know, you're able to find time to do all those things I told you about, right? Sleep properly, eat properly, get some chance to get outside, work out a little bit. If there's no, if, if, you know, if you used to have, you know, 10 psychiatrists, psychologists, care workers, therapists, uh, counselors, you know, if you had 10 of them for every, you know, 100 people that needed them, right? Now you've got 500 people that need the same 10. So there, there's, it's, a, problem trying to find the time uh for care workers for people such as myself frankly it's hard to find the time uh to do what we need to do right to to actually space out um our patient flow and and, and see people you know I, I i i what i've done is i've kind of mixed my day and i do coaching i do corporate and executive coaching um and i do that in the morning i do that kind of uh, i start my morning with a few hours of coaching i have uh Coaching clients that I see, um, either in person or virtually, and then I begin my practice around noon and uh, go right through. Right, so um, we're able to we're able to do um, what we can. I'm one guy with a you know staff, a fairly big staff, but you know the industry as a as a situation is going to be a problem. There's something called the great, also called the great resignation. Um, so it's uh, it's a function of being able to uh, really um, manage. The healthcare and 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 the opportunity for people to get well um, on their own, so they can help others get well. And and according to this U.S. program, it's called Access to Prescription Digital Therapeutics Act. It's a bipartisan bill that would establish benefit categories for digital therapeutics and create coverage and reimbursement framework that would allow digital healthcare uh, access for millions of Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries. Another promising solution to address the shortage of providers is by empowering paraprofessionals, coaches, with training in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a great idea. You know, using coaches um, or peer support folks that can provide um, some cognitive behavioral therapy uh, or introductions there uh, to it and, and teach people kind of what it's about, how it works, um, Was a great, it's a great thing. So the idea is take the stress away from the, from the, from the requirements, from the needs, the demand, which then gives the healthcare care folks, um, such as myself, a little breathing room. So, um, yeah, just remember, if it's hard to get in to see somebody, and when you do, they're kind of, you know, maybe not their best, understand that they're just like you and me, and uh, we get burnt out too after a while of listening to people's uh, concerns and trials and tribulations and uh, needs, um, as much as I love doing it. Sometimes, you know, just... Can push you over the edge, to take a time. You got to get up, walk around, stretch your legs like it takes. You know, you got to be uh, able to do this just like a surgeon or anyone else that deals with difficult stuff. Uh, when we come back from break here, I want to talk about marijuana. Um, yeah, just simple marijuana, but how it can make you super sick, especially if you're a teen. But for all of us, uh, these high levels of THC, um, as much as it gets you really high, can make you really sick. So that's what we're going to do as soon as we get back. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud. 640 Toronto.
0: You're listening to road to recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto.
1: Back. You're on the road to recovery. If you're just tuning in here, I'm Yona Bud. I'm your host. Glad to be here with Natasha, Stefan and the whole crew. And uh, we're having the board open for you as well for this segment. Um, If you've had an experience with marijuana, where it's the potency is so great that you got super high, um, uncomfortably high, you know that feeling that you just kind of, kind of really wish this would pass. It Happened to me the one time I tried magic mushrooms. I ended up on the couch for like a day and a half, crawled up in a ball. And everybody goes, "Oh man, mushrooms are awesome!" They were a freaking horrible, a awesome, horrible experience. Anyway, so weeds the same way, marijuana, cannabis, same thing, right? These days, uh, the combinations of oils and waxes and all kinds of derivatives of the plant itself create high contents of THC. So THC, THC, Tom, Harold, Sam, THC, I'm sorry, Tom, Harold, Charlie, sorry. THC is the side of the marijuana plant, the cannabis plant that gets you high. It's the psychoactive stuff, right? The other side of the plant, if you will, is CBD, Charlie, Bob, David, CBD. CBD is the stuff that I really talk a lot about in terms of its medical benefits, uh, great for aches and pains, general uh, general malaise, and for older people especially. Um, and more importantly, it's really uh, it it really kind of helps a lot in the area of mental health. But i got to put that on hold for just a second, um, and I'm going to talk to Maria based on our last uh, segment about healthcare workers. Maria, how are you doing?
4: Well, I'm tired, and the reason I wanted to call, I didn't have an opportunity. It's because one of the, you've talked about it once, I think, before, is the big segment of family caregivers who never get a break, who have nowhere to go or have nobody to uh, relieve them. There's a lot of us who fit into that category.
1: Oh, my. So uh, you're telling me that you're a caregiver and you have zero support.
4: Yeah, I'm a family caregiver, uh, so an unpaid caregiver, and... Those of us who do this almost full-time, um, we don't always get breaks. There's a lot of us, there's, as far as I can tell, there's about 3.5 of us in Ontario that are so-called family caregivers. Not everybody has the resources to uh, pay other people to come in or have family that can take over taking care of somebody at home.
1: Wow, yeah, I hear you. Um, I can tell you, I don't know if you know about there's a if you live in the GTA, um, there's something called CCAC. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of them. It's I mean, changed. Might...
4: The name has changed twice over since it was called that.
1: Yeah, irrelevant. But there, yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. But the the point is that there are government assisted programs. I have them for my dad. We had them for my mom when she was alive as well. Uh, you know, we have uh, when my mom was alive. Uh, they had they were coming in three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for an hour, forty five minutes, whatever. Uh, enough times to kind of help out and give my dad a break. Um, and now we have the same for my dad. Not, not that he really needs the care at this point, thankfully, but, um, uh, I, you know, I, I feel for you, man. And, and I guess the only thing I can tell you is, you know, grab your, grab your opportunities when you can, you know, when, yeah. when the person you're care, when you're, the person you're caring for is down for a nap, try to do the same thing. You know, if you can get out for some fresh air, uh, you know, meals are very important. What you eat is very important. Um, but, um, uh, listen, all I can tell you is, uh, uh, blessings and strength to continue to do what you're doing, man. And um, thank you so much for calling. And I appreciate you sharing with us tonight. Well, when thank we go you. back here to t- my pleasure. When we go back here, um, we're talking about uh, we're talking about a girl. Her name is Elise. She was 14 years old. Uh, she just started vaping, right? She started vaping cannabis. Uh, it was really cool because it didn't smell, right? Could hide it from her parents. It was convenient a tiny little device. You just press a button. You know, on the second or third blast, you're pretty high. Well, after she did it for two or three times, she became uh, pretty much hooked, as she said. It was insane, an insane euphoria. Um, she, um, Everything was moving slowly. I got super hungry. Everything was hilarious. It was great. But eventually, the euphoria morphed into something more disturbing. The marijuana she was smoking through the vaping device eventually made her very anxious and sad. She was having depressive moments. She actually remembers passing out. She's 16 at this time, right? She remembers passing out in the shower she woke up a half an hour later. Can you imagine? It was a bath, um, and that's not your. It wasn't your average weed. You know, this is just stuff you're getting with oils and waxes that you bought from some dealers. I don't think it was a, a direct, a, like a proper licensed store. If you buy your products, by the way, from licensed Ontario cannabis stores, uh, there is a restriction on the amount of THC and such that are in the in the uh, in the joints or in the waxes or whatever you're you're doing. Such that you can read about them before you consume them. You buy the stuff on the street that doesn't really exist. Um, she was at about ninety percent THC when she was um, she was vaping multiple times a day. Um, but then she began having about a year and a half later began having mysterious bouts of illness. She started throwing up all over the place, right? And I remember when my wife uh, was going through something. She's actually got uh, pumpkin has got this condition that's uh, has to do with throwing up she's had it since she was a child um, but anyway it so she was throwing up all over the place we and we went to the doctor and one of the things that the doctor her family doctor said you know how much weed are you smoking and that was the first place they went to because it sounded a lot like this green out that people get from smoking you know high 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 potency uh, marijuana a lot um, and more importantly when you're vaping it people have to understand this whole vaping thing listen to me man whether you're vaping THC or, or or you're vaping nicotine or whatever you know you think it's cool because you're not smoking anymore okay, I get it right That stuff that drives the flavors and that drives the the, the, the nicotine and drives like the, the oils and the waxes and the, the the delivery method really messes with your throat big time really messes with your lungs big time and um, yeah so this this young girl she ended up in the merge like 20 different times. Uh, throwing up constantly, and they didn't really understand what it was, um, because she was, you know, they never really talked about her, her cannabis use, and she actually stayed in hospital. She, you know, they, at one point, um, they, you know, tried to, uh, you know, deal with something. I think they some gastronomical gastroenterologist uh, enter, diagnosed her eventually with cannabinoid uh, hypermesis syndrome, a condition that causes recurring vomiting and heavy marijuana users, um, especially if you're, again, delivering it through something. The average, the av- In 1995, just so you understand what we're talking about here, the average concentration of THC in cannabis samples uh, was about 4%. That's 1995. By 2017, it was at 17%. Now cannabis manufacturers are extracting THC to make oils, Edibles, like edibles, are sometimes super potent. If you're not careful here, you got to be really careful. Wax, sugar sized crystals, and glass like products called Shatter that advertise THC levels as high as 95%. That's super potent, my friends. I know weed is weed, but not all the weed is the same. You know what I'm saying? It's definitely not all the same. Got to be careful. The average level of CBD, the good stuff, is actually going down, and it really should be going up because that's the stuff that makes the difference. That's the healthy part of the plant. If you're looking for, you know, some relief around pain and so on, that's exactly what you need is you need more CBD and less THC. So, you know, 15%, 16% THC and maybe 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10% CBD, that would be awesome. 50-50 CBD and THC together, also awesome. Again, from a recreational use perspective, smoke this stuff every day. Anything every day is no good unless it's prescribed. And if you're smoking something every day and it's prescribed by a doctor for either mental health or physical health, it should be the CBD stuff, not the THC stuff. Because you can smoke CBD pretty much all the time and be careful. To, you know, you get it can affect your your liver and some of your organs if you smoke a whole bunch of it. But or use or drop a whole bunch of it as an oil. Lots of ways to use it, and it's very it's very. Um, it's very effective if properly used and monitored by a doctor. So I'm a big believer in medical use of marijuana prescribed by a doctor, much more so than the concept of recreational as I am. Related to recreational alcohol, the same thing. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about more stuff here. Uh, we're talking about sex addictions and how people during the pandemic, how you deal with that when you can't actually see people, when it's part of your the thing you need to do to make you feel good every day. We'll be right back here on the Road to Recovery. This is Yonah Bud, six forty, Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on six forty, Toronto.
1: And welcome back. It's uh, what is it? Ten thirty one here. Uh, do you know where your children are? Your lo- loved ones, your elderly folks, your pets. Now's the time to be checking it out. It's you know ten thirty something, and uh, hey, where is everybody? You know, we'll leaning over to Fred there or to Mary. You know your partner or your buddies there next to you and go hey man you know where so-and-so is and if you don't you should probably call nine one one if you think they're at risk somewhere some potentially something bad might happen call nine one one. if you ever need to reach me throughout the week you can do that by calling 877-777-5808 or send us an email here road to recovery at 640 toronto.com we'd love to hear from you and we'll include some of your comments ideas in the work that we do here. Um so you know if you had or have a substance abuse issue or you know a gambling issue or an eating issue or you know something like that during the pandemic you probably were able to figure your way around it, right? So um here's the issue. The issue is that there are people out there, many people out there more than you probably that have different forms of sexual addictions. Okay, so don't turn off. The, don't don't turn the radio off for a second. Listen to me. Um, when you talk about someone who has a compulsion, right? You talk about somebody who has an addiction. You talk about somebody who has a you know a a a um, a diagnosis that is uh, around you know the repetitive need to do something. Right? It, it's 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 serious. It's not like oh the guy just can't get enough sex and he should be able to quote unquote keep it in his pants or Know, the reverse for you know a fee, if someone who presents female like that, right? But it's not like that. It's a driving force inside you that you can't control. You have to understand that when when folks that are looking for alcohol and can't get it and lose their stuff, it's the alcohol, sure, but it's the it's what the alcohol does for them. It makes for a short period of time, at least they think so, makes their lousy life feel better. Same with opioids or, you know, gambling for that matter. Same with sex. There are people that require sexual gratification on a regular basis, sometimes daily, sometimes multiple times a day. Some people have, you know, an addiction to self-gratification versus with others. But those sexual compulsions, the sex addiction that we're talking about, um, behave very differently during the pandemic. Many people with sex addictions continued their virtual experiences right including porn and second sexting and cyber sex but and that out of fear for their lives most with most people with sexual addictions completely abandoned the in-person hookups the, the, the daily commercial hookups with sex workers you know many people had you know had relationship with sex workers you know on a daily basis they would meet up right? So the, 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 we need to understand that addictions have more have more than just psychological dependency here. It, it's like a chemical, right? Any kind of addiction is like a chemical, like cocaine or opioids or alcohol. And it's a disease. You have to understand that there's a disease. So you have to understand the experiences that people feel when their disease isn't in check. So addictions now include behaviors like gambling, online gaming, video games, Ah, uh, problematic and compulsive sex. Right? We understand that this is real stuff. This is now. now here's here's the issue. The issue is that um, that with COVID 19 uh, and the precautions receding, right? So people are taking moving away from their their, their cautionary behavior. Sex addiction uh, is on the rise again. So those that were locked down on their own and didn't have access to partners, either paid for or otherwise, uh, are now out there. More aggressively, more actively than they were prior to the pandemic, according to the study. So, a diagnosis of sexual addiction as a dependency is also complicated, and frankly, often very—it's dismissed often. In a so, let's give you a scenario: family is uh, breaking up, right? Your typical husband and wife structure, and one of them, or you know, one of them is caught, you know, continuously having affairs. Uh, you know, that's the grounds for them separating or, or divorcing. Not that that impacts, you know, anything legal today anymore. It's, you know, people split. It's 50-50 usually and so on. Uh, but the concept of a, of a sexual addiction is, you know, one that a lot of people have used over the years, frankly, as, you know, as, as kind of a BS excuse for negative behavior, for taking advantage of of you know, their freedoms, if you will, and stepping outside their marriage. Again, I don't want to opine on whether that's, you know, a moral or not moral thing to do. That's not what we're here to talk about. But understand that, it's you know, the the, the ability to actually diagnose a sex addiction uh, requires really skilled therapeutic tools. Um, And it takes, you know, often uh, months of continued talk therapy to in fact, you know, get to the bottom of the of, of the person's behavior, diagnose their, or you know, look at the patterns of behavior, um, the types of gratification they look for. Um, you know, most people with sex addictions um, that I've met, treated, and worked with um, have had peculiar, more peculiar. That's a wrong word. It's not fair. Can't do that. Um, that their concepts of sex were not. Um, standard average norm that one would think of if you were to write down what's your, you know, what's your thought of sex, you know, what, what so the, the standard behaviors of, you know, male, female, 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 male, male, whatever it is. Um, there's usually behaviors, um, in addiction, these types of sex addictions that are around, um, uh, more peculiar types of sexual activity, perhaps, um, uniforms dress up uh, perhaps uh, toys devices and such like that um, sometimes often is demeaning sex it's, it's the person looking for the sex doesn't believe they deserve it so it's it's demeaning sex it, it, it's complex it's not just like you know excuse my expression it's just like not going out just to get yourself some it's it's um, it's a very subversive it's very subversive of the healthy adaptive instinct to connect right seek pleasure and procreate so the compulsion does not necessarily lead those affected to pursue lots of sex with available partners but it tends to have terrible sex they tend to have terrible sex lives like not a lot of satisfaction and at the expense of their jobs and families right spend hours and hours a day of folks that have uh, these types of, of uh, addictions and behavioral disorders. You know, days on porn and seeking out uh, sexual encounters, I, I, I've treated, I, I was treating a patient not long ago who had one of these uh, sexual addictions and ended up on the wrong site by accident. He was drunk, he was high, uh, ended up uh, clicking on the wrong thing and is now, you know, facing charges for receiving uh, pornographic material related to children. Which was never, according to him, never his thing anyway. It was just he accidentally ended up on the wrong site, happened to be a site that was monitored by by police um, and cyber experts, and he was arrested. But it was his it was his desire to just go to the next level of dark and disgusting. It wasn't a function of satisfaction, and you know, not like the old days of looking at uh, magazines like you know when I was a kid. It's not. It's not like that. It's um anyway it, it it's something to take seriously and um we're hoping that we're, we're going to get more more studies around how to treat this type of behavior uh but you know the pandemic has certainly made it much worse uh people who were held back for you know months if not years from you know seeking the types of connections they normally would to meet the needs and satisfactions that are required um are now doing it in much more unhealthy ways so, anyway, we're going to figure this out. And addiction itself, when we come back from break, we're going to talk about it quickly. Um, is addiction hereditary? I want to hear from you, too. 416-870-6400. Let me know if you think so. We'll be back in just a minute. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yonah Bud, 640 Toronto.
0: Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And-
1: And welcome back. This is the last segment of the show. Keep your arms and feet in. We're almost going to be at the end of the road. And when we do, we'll pull into the lot and you can get out safely. Natasha's mom is listening. Hey, Natasha's mom. Um, And anyone else that's out there, hey, how you all doing? If there's a birthday, happy birthday. Anniversaries, happy anniversary. And anything like that. If you got divorced and it's a good thing, happy divorce. If you got married, happy marriage. And everything in between. Awesome Saturday night in Toronto. It's almost 11 o'clock. It's the time when stuff happens, right? So sometimes it's bad stuff that happens. You want to be careful that if you're roaming the streets, you're not doing it alone. Uh, I don't care who you are, big guy, small guy, big girl, little girl, anything in between. Got to be have a buddy system. That's how, this, that's how Yona rolls. We roll with a buddy system so we all have each other to rely on, and nothing bad happens because I don't want to read about any of you folk in the paper tomorrow right or listen to it here on global on any of our network coverage it'll be all over the place so just take care right that's what we're doing so here's the question everyone has their opinion ah he, he drinks because his dad drinks and his dad's dad drank and all his dad's brothers drank and his grandpa drank and they're just drinkers is addiction hereditary that's the question 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. Need to hear from you now. We don't have that much time. If You want to hear yourself on radio? Now's the time to do it. Well, frankly, the disease can be woven into your DNA. That's a fact, Jack, right? It can actually be uh, woven into your DNA. The Cleveland Clinic, which is a, actually a nonprofit academic medical center, um, they help support this mission um, to deal with um, the understanding of of the susceptibility to develop a substance use disorder, um, hereditary, through heredity, <clears throat> through your genetics. So genetics can mark you as more prone, frankly, to alcohol, tobacco products such as cocaine, heroin, and opioids. You can be prone to it. Doesn't necessarily you're going to be mean that you're going to be quote unquote addicted to it. But does that mean your chance of addiction is essentially a coin flip if you've got a family history of substance use disorders? So if Uncle James you know was a drinker and pa was a drinker and his pa was a drinker and your dad's a drinker or on, on mom's side, the same same story. There's a chance that you have a predisposition to alcohol use disorder. Or if they're heavy smokers, if you grow up in a household where everyone in the house smokes cigarettes, you have a tendency, there's likelihood that you're going to be a smoker or you go the other way, right? I'm never smoking. I'm never drinking. Hate it, can't stand it. You relate both of them to horrible experiences as a child, right? But if you're 14 and Uncle Uncle Jones, Jimmy calls you over and says, come on, Billy, come on, have a half a beer with your uncle here, and it makes you feel like a big shot because you're drinking with the boys, hard to stop. Rick's on hold. He's an addiction survivor, wants to talk generally about his experience. Um, Hey, Rick, what's up, man?
5: Hi, how are you, Chad?
1: I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Um, Yeah, so uh, hereditary or not? What do you think?
5: Well, um, I think it's something that people see within families, but I don't necessarily think it's a genetic thing, hereditary. My experience was that uh, I was a heavy gambler for many, many years, And uh, what I came to realize after trying many, many ways to uh, overcome it, uh, I came to realize after I did, and that was through the 12-step program, and I had a friend that was in AA, and he started sending me some of these messages that he had gotten from another friend from AA, and these messages were tied to biblical statements. Yep. And eventually it opened my uh, mind, my soul or whatever. And then one night I woke up and I heard this voice, which was my father's who's passed away a long time ago. And yeah. he said, You're not gonna do that anymore. And I've never had an urge again. But you have to look at it that I did this for about fifty some years. And I went wow. tons of money, tons and yeah, tons man. of lost time. Yeah, man. So on and so on. But my Quick point is that I believe that all people try things because they're unhappy in some way in their life or they're not feeling well or they're sad or whatever. Yep. And so they try something and they like it. Could be yep. alcohol, drugs, or gambling, whatever, they like it. Yep. So then it goes from a like to I want to do that because I like it. So now you want to do it. And then eventually what happens is you become addicted you have to do it. And no longer do you want to do it. you have to do it. You need to do it.
1: Hey Rick, how how long how long have you uh, how long have you been on your own road to recovery?
5: Oh, I've been on it since nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine and that road was a rocky road I had in and out, in and out of all kinds of casinos and so on. But yep. my point is, is that in the twelve step if you're familiar with it, I am it comes to a point where you accept the fact you're powerless. Then you go through two and three steps, which are that you yeah. come to realize a higher power can yeah. help you in some way, and you have to accept that the higher power would be there. I kept skipping over that and going to twelve from helping everybody else, yeah, yeah, making amends here and there, but I never had any real recovery, and I'd go back again so well I, pre- I- listen is, buddy
1: I, pre- I i I appreciate the call, and I'm really, really yeah. impressed with your recovery and thank you. Yeah, we're just going to jump in here and see if we can just finish off this segment. But really appreciate it, brother, and stay on the right track. And uh, I'm sure your dad's watching over you, and he's quite proud. Um, So we're getting back to this concept of addiction being genetic, not genetic. And, you know, it's you got to understand that it's a chronic relapsing brain disorder, right? That addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disorder. So in many ways, it's no different than having a family history, let's say, of heart disease or diabetes, right? So... um, the addiction genes per se. So, the genetic connection to addiction, according to experts, comes through inherited levels of dopamine. So, it, which is the neurotransmitter part of the made up in your brain. So, think of dopamine as your brain's reward center. So, basically, it acts like a feel good hormone, right? So, high levels of dopamine can fuel poor impulse control. So, that doesn't mean that you have to have the genes. But you might just be struggling with substance abuse disorder or other forms of addictive behavior based on um, the modeled behavior, the behavior that that you're exposed to. See, sometimes stuff rubs off on us, you know, kind of the smell rubs off on us. It doesn't have to necessarily come from the inside. You can teach hate and create hate, for example, easily from the outside by repetitive negative behavior. Same too with addictive behaviors. You know, if, if your mom or dad or someone in your family, you know, had an eating disorder, you know, and there's two or three kids in the family, chances are one of those kids, if not more than one, is going to have some form of eating disorder. It's it's what we learn is when we're little, That's I tell parents all the time, you need to model good behavior for your children if you want them to act properly, if you want them to grow up healthy. They're going to grow up based on what they see and hear. Right? So if dad comes home from work or mom comes home from work at the end of the day and the first thing they do is pop a beer or pour a glass of wine because they had a really difficult day at work, yeah, man, I hear that. Then eventually kids understand if they have a difficult day at school, they can have something to drink or smoke or snort or drop or eat, right? So clearly your family tree is a soul, is, is, isn't the sole indicator of addiction risk but it plays a significant role in opening the door to understand substance use disorder. So so environmental factors that can contribute to addiction include the following. We've only got a couple of minutes, so I'll share this with you. Easy access to the substance, right? You can't try what you don't have. Peer pressure. Friends can serve as a major influence for drinking, smoking, drug use, sex, um, you know, all, all kinds of other dangerous activities, stunt driving, and so on other types of dangerous behaviors. Traumatic stress, there's a strong, huge, hugely strong connection between exposure to traumatic events and substance use disorder. We know that according to the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. They've done reports. People with mental health issues, such as bipolar disorder, or post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, depression, often accompanies uh, substance use disorder. Most of the patients I see have dual diagnoses of both you know, substantial mental health disorder and substance use disorder, or you know, um, basically at-risk behaviors. Um, you know, what does it all mean? So I'm summing it up real simple here. There isn't a single path, There isn't one single path to addiction, according to the experts. Anybody can a- develop a substance use disorder (SUD). SUD, right? Anybody can adventure, can can develop a, an SUD, and they can do it for all kinds of reasons. There's no any one explanation. So if you have a family use history of substance use disorder, there are steps that you can take to reduce the chances of it impacting you. Number one, limiting or avoiding the use of things like substances like alcohol, tobacco, other substances. Talking to your family doctor about your concerns about substance use disorder or substance use history in your family. Get a full understanding of your genetic predispositions. And if you're really concerned about it, you need to talk to a therapist. So when your genes make you more susceptible to addiction, that's not fated outcome. It doesn't mean that that's what it's going to be. You just need to understand it and, and, and be, able, be able to understand it and make it all kind of make sense for you a little bit. And talk to people. That's the key. Talk to people. Just because your father does something doesn't mean you have to, right? All we want to do is adopt the benefit, the beneficial, better behaviors that our families provide us with, not the negative stuff if you can – separate them, and I know you can. So, Heavy Show, appreciate you being here with us tonight. It's so much more fun when you're around, and we know you're out there listening. Uh, appreciate you, really do. Um, hug the people you're with. Tell them that you love them. Make sure that uh, you say nice things, you spread nice. Like my mom used to say, if you don't have something nice to say to somebody, maybe you shouldn't say anything at all, right? Love you guys. See you next week. We'll be right back here on The Road to Recovery. This is Jonah Bud, 640, Toronto.